How do rich people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, the Rothschild family, how do they avoid paying taxes? Own nothing, control everything. Now, here's the good thing about tax code. You don't have to turn a profit. You have to be attempting to turn a profit. Oh. <laughs> I like that. That's sick. <laughs> Start a side gig. Take your hobby and monetize it, which is going to create the opportunity for you to generate certain deductions that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Can you give an example of that? There's something called the Augusta rule, and the Augusta rule is basically just you're able to call around in your town, find three different venues, get average costs of what they would charge you in order to hold an event at those venues. Then you just book out your own home for seven, eight, nine functions throughout the course of the year. So just throw parties with all your friends and you get to assign that cost as if you had gone to a hotel and rented out a ballroom. And then you get to take that as a deduction. In America, we have this really screwed up idea where we don't communicate with our kids about money. It's the rules to the game. How can you expect to win the game if you don't know the rules? I've lived life poor, it ain't fun. Elliot, thank you so much for joining me, brother. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad, awesome. I'm, I'm glad you wore your, your most professional attire for, uh, for well, that Well, you know, it's Red Friday <laughs> in Kansas City, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, yeah. We're uh, two days away from uh, whooping the shit out of the Bills again. Hell, hell yeah. Uh, I was at the last game with the 13 seconds. That was probably the most thrilling NFL football Insane, game of right? all time. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was just nuts. And watching people uh, get up and leave. I was like, well, my, what are you all doing? Uh -huh. and, oh, that was an awesome game. So I'm super excited for Sunday. I love it. I was telling Brandon, who uh, who produces and edits the show, I was like, dude, I got this guy, Elliot, coming. He's like he's like one of the greatest tax dudes ever. He's like a tax genius, CEO of his own company, Alpha. He's like, he's the man. Like, he's like a real, like, he manages a lot of fucking money. He knows a lot of very powerful people. And then you pulled up in this outfit. And I was like, God, he's not going to believe me. He's not going to believe me. But just take my word for it, okay? Everyone listening, Brandon, this guy is the, is the truth, all right? Well, that, yeah, that's the funny thing. I gave up a, a long time ago on um, trying to dress like everybody else yeah. in the industry. Yeah, I so like it. I we're, like we're it. Pretty, uh, we're pretty cash. I mean, you're dressed like a winner. Well, you know what I, mean? I mean, this is what winners wear. I'm pretty sure this is what the winner wears. Literally, you could wear a Literally. suit and and be a fake winner. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean. Exactly. Or you can be like a real fucking yeah, winner. I respect yeah. it. Yeah, it's all about being authentic. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, the first thing I want to know, just out the gate, how and this might be like a two hour answer. Gotcha. Okay? How do rich people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, the Rothschild family, the legacy old money families, new billionaires, the richest people on earth, how do they avoid paying taxes? <laughs> that, that, that is easily mo more than a two-hour answer. But uh, let's break those two. Let's break all those people you just named into two groups. Okay. Okay. So you have like the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, right? So let's just call it old money, and then you have new money: Musk, Zuck, Bezos. Okay. Um, now, uh, the goal of the new money is to end up in the same structure uh, as the old money. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I'm not going to, um, and I hope you don't mind, I'm not going to get into exactly how those people do it. Sure. Okay. Um, I Because you know, you know exactly how. I know exactly how they do it. Those and, individual people do it. Yes. And I will give you the answer with, in this conversation, but I'm not going to acknowledge that it's the answer. Sure. So somewhere in here will be the truth. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just, I try to keep a low profile when it comes to this kind of stuff um, and not attract uh, too much attention. Um, so usually it's, it's, I don't even like doing something like this, coming on to a podcast. Uh, I've done one. Yeah. You're now number two. 
Yes. Okay. So, um, and this is it. No more. Okay? Probably we're, no more. Yeah, we're, we're limiting the supply. Probably okay. No. We're well, going to keep the stock. I'm not here. trying to limit the supply. I just try to keep a low profile. But um, so the best example, and so th- this is what I love about truth. Uh, truth is being told to you all the time. It's just shrouded and hidden inside all the nonsense that gets pumped out on a daily basis. All right. The best example of how the old money does it was actually told to you uh, in the media when the Queen of England passed, okay? Um, so what a lot of people don't realize is that U.S. law is, is based on where we came from, which is British common law, okay? Um, there was one, there's a number of differences, but one of the most significant ones when it comes to taxes and when it comes to this conversation was that America didn't want to have a two-caste system. We didn't want to have the haves and the have-nots, even though we ended up with it anyways, right? Um, <clears throat> at the time, the haves were um, royalty, okay, uh, the landowners. They used structures in order to hold assets and to build and accumulate assets generation after generation after generation, okay? <clears throat> we didn't want that to be the case. So we put a limit on how long a contract uh, can exist. And that limit initially was 99 years. And there are still places in America uh, where you'll see, like, a buddy of mine out in Pennsylvania has got an airplane hangar. He's got a 99-year contract on it, right? So there's still remnants of this. Now, what happened, though, was in 1986 – right, let me back up one second. So, uh, right, in America, there's basically three levels of government, and there's more, but, but three major ones, right? The federal, a state – and a municipality or a city, okay? Now, um, the concept behind our government was that the larger the government, the less power it would have, right? So a homeowner's association, uh, they can control the color of your house, Hmm. right? They can control if you have a flag up, right? Now, the federal government can't do that, right? right? Well, what's the purpose for that? Why Why would the smaller the government be able to have more control, and the bigger the government, the less. Assuming it's more specified, it's probably more tailored to the needs of the constituents within the community. Well, exactly, right? And if I and if those constituents don't like a rule in a city or a HOA or a city or a state, they can move out of there mm-hmm. and still stay part of the country, mm-hmm. right? So this was why initially the federal government was limited to two things um, and, and has since been expanded out into all sorts of crazy nonsense. But... My point to all this is that <clears throat> you have the tax code being written at a federal level. And the tax code is referred There's 52 different sections of federal law. They're called titles. Uh, Title 26 is the one that pertains to revenue to the federal government. We that's, would, that's federal tax. We, yeah, we would refer to that as taxes. Got it. Okay. Now, all the rules are written there at the federal level. All right. But interestingly enough... There are things being written at a state level that impact that, okay, because we have these different levels of government. So in 1986, South Dakota uh, passed a law uh, that altered how long a contract could remain in force in the state of South Dakota, and they changed it to in perpetuity, Mm. okay? So you could now, in the state of South Dakota, create a contract between you and another party— that will exist forever. Now, when you say contracts, 
Do you mean interpersonal contracts, business contracts, or all contracts in general? All contracts in general, but a trust is a contract. I see. Okay. And so in 1986, in South Dakota, became the first time in the United States since 1776 that you could create a trust that would hold assets and exist forever. That's pretty powerful. It's extremely, it's so powerful. Uh, anybody listening to your pod here can go Google, just type in uh, South Dakota, 500 million and little town. And you'll find an article in Bloomberg. Uh, oddly enough, what blows my mind is it literally was just written a couple years ago, I think 2021. And <clears throat> Bloomberg just now figured out and acknowledged that in a little town in South Dakota is an office that holds trusts for the wealthiest people in America and sits on, as far as they could figure out, $500 million of assets all being held in one little town in South Dakota. Why? Wow. Because of this rule in regards to trust law. Interesting. So if I open a trust in Florida. Correct. 99 years. Well, actually, so 1986 is when South Dakota did it. Just about every other state followed suit. Got it. And what, do you know what pushed South Dakota to do it? No, I don't. That's an excellent question. That's interesting. Um, it's interesting at that time that South Dakota was like, you know, Well, just... ultimately, it's probably the same way everything is done. And this is one of the things that I don't know that a lot of people realize. But just about every law gets created because some lobbying organization uh, crafts the law and then pays a politician to slap their name on it mm -hmm. and pushes that through. Um, that's really the saddest part of it all. Um, it's not done because some politician who's, you know, a good, moral, upright person has an idea to benefit you. Right. Uh, There's a so. corporation that's like, yo, we can make a lot of money if this thing happens. <clears throat> yeah. How much yeah. will it cost to get this guy in there to make this thing happen? Yeah, absolutely. And that happens all the way up to the highest level of politics. Well, what's crazy, it happens all the way down to the lowest level. <laughs> it's happening in your little town of 30,000 people with the mayor. Yeah. And if you and if you don't think, and if something's, if, if they're doing it at that level, you want me to, you, you're really going to believe it's not being done at the much more powerful, much more lucrative level? I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be greasing the HOA guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be paying off the HOA guy. I'm like, absolutely. we got to fix this. Okay, mm -hmm. do my bidding. Mm -hmm. That's wild. So what is the implications of having a trust in South Dakota that can last forever? Is that basically if you are a new billionaire, you can put your your money in South Dakota? Well, you don't, yeah, and you don't even need to be a billionaire anymore, right? Because um, as technology advances, it makes it more... Um, like the economy of scale starts to work more to your advantage to bring it to where a lot of these things are, um, you know, feasible to do with much l less and less and less money, okay? But I want to go back to what I was initially saying is they told you, they explained this to you in the media uh, in pieces when the queen passed. Mm. And um, so there was articles written about Prince Williams, right? And he, and, and one of them talked about how he's now worth a billion dollars. Well, he didn't become worth a billion dollars because the queen passed. In fact, none of the royal family truly have any net worth. Like what? I know, okay, because they don't own anything. Okay, so in these articles, they refer to an entity called the firm. Right, the firm is just a company like Alfi. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> that firm manages the royal family's trust. All right. Now, also there was. Uh, a lot of talk, uh, Meghan Markle was very upset that her kids uh, weren't getting certain titles and didn't have access to certain 
um, benefits by being part of the family, right? Well, that had nothing to, you know, and, and there was all these reasons given, mostly racism. It had nothing to do with any of that, okay? Generations earlier, when the royal family's trust was established, there's, there's a trust document that lays out all the rules. And, and, and once that's set, depending on, and I have not read their actual trust document, so I wouldn't know if some of these provisions are in there. Um, <clears throat> most likely, the um, branches of generations of heirs is limited, right? Because if you didn't limit the the number of heirs that can all have access, it just you just diluted dilute you just diluted down, and nobody yeah, would have anything. Four right? generations would be yeah yeah. Now also, uh, when they talked about Prince William's now being worth a billion dollars, um, it sounds like uh, it sounds like their trust is set up very similar to mine. I just copied what every you know all the ultra wealthy people do, but within my personal trust, there are seven separate households assets all inside of a single trust. So if you think about the trust like an office building, right, where there's different floors and different suites, there's the building management that has keys to every suite in every office. And they're entrusted not to steal information and not to let people from one suite into another suite or one office to another office, or right? Well, that's the trustee of the trust, okay? Now, <clears throat> within this office building, there can be as many as the creators of the trust wanted to have, right? So in the royal family, there's some amount of offices. Mm -hmm. Each one of these offices has its own assets, mm -hmm. okay? So in my, in my family, in my trust, there's seven different households. Um, each household has their own section of the trust, and it's like an, an office within this building. And was that just an arbitrary number that you came up with? No, no, no. And mine's set up to where I can have even more. It's just currently only seven of only. There's only seven. Okay. All right. <clears throat> now, as my kids have children, and like this will branch out. And I did something different with mine. Instead of limiting the number, um, I set up provisions to where you have to be actively participating in growing the wealth of the trust have access to the resources of the trust, mm -hmm. okay, which should allow for there to be an almost unlimited number of um, people functioning, work, living out within the, within this trust structure. And does that provision try to curb, like, entitlement from your children? Absolutely. Absolutely, right? Got it. So my kids have been raised knowing that um, – you only you like you have to be actively participating for the team in order to have access to the team's resources. And then I always fought with, and the team will always have more resources than you. Mm. So why, <clears throat> so why would you not want to actively per be participating in helping the team? Does that count just any job, like minimum wage, or <clears throat> contributing to the trust in that regard? No, uh, well, no, I, no, none of my kids would ever work a job. Uh, that pays minimum wage mm -hmm. uh, or even provides them a W-2. Gotcha. Um, but so. if they're able to access the trust just by doing like the bare minimum. Yeah, like well, the bare minimum is like, so one of my kids wants to be a veterinarian, right? Mm -hmm. So how would they do this, right? They would go to school. They would get their, their degree in veterinary medicine. And then the trust would buy an existing vet clinic or give them the money to build their own vet clinic. I see. So right. the trust would give them the leg up to then bring the most amount Correct. of equity then, back into the trust. And then the trust is going to own that vet clinic with that child. 
Uh, okay. Uh, and the trust would hire them to run the vet clinic because the trust is not a person. It can't do that. Right. So the trust is actually going to own the land that the clinic sits on. It's going to own the building that's built on it. It's going to, you know, own um, the, the, the brand. It's going to own the assets of the vet clinic. It's going to have hired the, the, you know, my daughter, if that's what she wants to do, uh, to run and manage the vet clinic. And so all your children would then be contributing to this larger trust that can correct. then move the money around to then correct. fund each one of their different aspirations. Yeah, correct. Right. So when in the in the news articles when the Queen passed, it talked about Prince Williams now being worth a billion dollars. All that happened was Prince Williams because he got bumped up a rung. So he moved up the office, right? So if the fourth floor is the you know, if he's on the fourth floor and there's six floors and the queen passes, he jumps up to the fifth floor. Mm. Well, the assets that are available to him are now a billion dollars. Ah, it's like it's like a credit line or something. Like he basically I mean, just he just got a line of credit. Well, basically. he just moved into a bigger suite in the trust. Right. He moved into a bigger suite in the office. Mm-hmm. And that suite had a billion dollars of resources. He gets to live in that suite's uh, castles. He gets to drive that suite's cars. He has to manage that suite's business interests. Mm. Okay, and and all of that is the billion dollars that they talked about. Right. So it's not like liquid cash that he's able to do whatever with. No, no, because he has a, because the firm is going to govern what can be done with it. Right. They're going to ensure he can't just liquidate things that he can't just spend it into mm. poverty. And right? yeah, he has like a fiduciary obligation to the trust. Well, and the firm has a fiduciary obligation to make sure that he manages it correctly. Right. Now they've done their job. Obviously, you know, it's not like Prince Williams is. Uh, doesn't understand what his role is. Right. He's been groomed his whole life to yeah, do Yeah, right. And so that's one of the most important things that I talk to people about as well. In America, we have this really screwed up idea where we don't communicate with our kids about money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the, the most tragic things that I see. My oldest daughter, uh, when she went to college, and she was in a college out in the uh, Northwest, and um, her one of her largest classes was math. She was the youngest kid in there, all right? Um, they try to use practical things to learn. So one day they were talking about credit and credit scores and credit monitoring and investments and all this kind of stuff for like a section, of, you know, I don't know, maybe like a week. She was 19 years old, and she was the only one with her own credit card, her, a credit monitoring app, and her own investment portfolio. And it's like... How 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 are how are you getting to college, and your parents have never like helped you with one of the most crucial aspects to you being able to live a life in this society, right? Hmm. Understanding credit, building credit, managing your credit, right? Well, it's probably because the parents don't know either. Most likely, they don't know either, right? <clears throat> so you just look because school's not going to teach it to you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Right. Um, and, and so it's very much dependent on parents to try and teach this stuff to their kids, but most of them don't know it either because nobody taught them. Right. Right? Um, so I just, I just find like, all right, so one of the guys that taught me a lot about the tax code, I asked him what made him get so into it. And he looked at me and he goes, it's the rules to the game. How can you expect to win the game if you don't know the rules? Mm. That's a bar. It hit me me hard. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, this entire country is full of people waking up every day and they're forced into a game. 
Mm-hmm. None of them really even want to play it. And none of them know what the rules are. So are there little practical things that the average person can do to try to lower their tax burden that maybe are some things that the ultra wealthy are doing at scale? Yeah. So the number one key is to get out of a W-2 job. It is the number one key. Mm-hmm. A W-2 job is literally just enslavement. And then a W-2, could you explain what that is for people? Yeah, so right w- W-2 is just your traditional, you go, you apply for a job, you fill out a W-2, you tell them what your tax withholdings are, they're going to send you your paycheck, they're going to withhold all your FICA taxes, uh, they're going to contribute to Social Security for you. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> those are the jobs that are going to take a portion out to pay for your health care benefits, right? They're going to give you the paid time off, mm-hmm. right? So that, I guess like an example of this is like if you were like we're selling insurance or something. Uh, probably not insurance because that's probably going to be a 1099 commission-based job. Gotcha. But, but let's say you worked at McDonald's, you worked at Target, you work at Starbucks, right? Those are all W-2 jobs. Right. Okay. Um, there's really two classes of people in America and everybody wants to break it down on income or race or gender. No, it's all bullshit. It's W-2 and non-W-2, all right? And um, you are just extremely limited in what can be done when you're a W-2 employee. Worse, the means and the mechanisms for you to be able to accumulate wealth and to retire are antiquated and are not worth you doing, but yet everyone continues to do it, okay? Quick example of that is the 401k, all right? Oh, but hey, my company's going to match 3% of my income. Okay, hallelujah, right? So <laughs> so the 401k got created in 1978 uh, when the tax code got overhauled. Uh, a guy named William Benna uh, is kind of responsible for it. Uh, he actually, working for a consulting firm called Johnson & Johnson, not the medical company, but another company, uh, implemented the very first 401k in 1979. Between 1980 and 2000, we shifted in America from what's called defined benefit plans, which are pensions, a benefit the company provides to you, to defined contribution plans, something you're contributing to and the company's contributing to, which is your 401k. I see. Okay. okay. Now, uh, that shift took place over the next 20 years, and it had impacts far-ranging, um, like – one of which is that the market averaged 17.75% a year for that entire 20 years. All right. Um, but my point, I digress. But um, in 1983, so the the first 401k is created in 1979. In 1983, the tax code was overhauled again. And for the first time in American history, Social Security started to become taxed. And what are the implications of that? Well... They had to figure out how are they going to tax it. Now, everybody believes that they earn Social Security, that it's their money, even though the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled it's not. Hmm. Okay? Now, what's really great about it is usually the government just lies to you, right? They, they lied when they said there would never be a federal income tax. They lied when they said your Social Security would never be taxed. Uh, they, they, they literally, um, uh, you know, they, they, just, they just lie all the time about everything, right? Um, so, but when it comes to how they tax Social Security, oddly enough, they told the truth. So it's called the provisional income calculation. Now, the great thing, the word provisional means likely to change. <laughs> <That's> yeah. <like, laughs> hey, there you way, go. way to nail it on the head. Okay. <laughs> now, they also didn't want you to know they wanted a means test. So what's means testing? Means testing is 
whether or not you have the means to warrant receiving something or the money to warrant receiving something. Programs that are means tested are generally considered to be welfare programs. Okay. You know, food stamps, mm-hmm. that's a means tested program. Um, Head Start is a means tested program, right? You have, to, you have to be lacking the means to pay for these things outside of the government program, then you qualify the pro- government gives gotcha. it If you, you make too much money, you can't get You food can't stamps. get them. Right. Right? So they wanted to means test your social security, but if they did that and you and all these people believed they had, it was their money that they had contributed and they had earned it, and then you're going to means test it, you're going to have a riot. So they had to basically shroud what they were trying to do with this bullshit, the provisional income calculation. So the provisional income calculation takes your other sources of income and runs it through a calculation to determine how much of your social security you deserve to get in retirement. Hmm. And the more money you have coming to you, that meets the government's definition of income, the more of the so- of your Social Security they take from you in the form of taxes. Oh, so they're effectively means testing it. Correct. Because if you make a ton of money, then they're going to be like, they, hey, they we're, taking all, that, we're taking all that Social Security. Exactly. And if you don't make that much money, then they're like, all right, you can keep some of your Social Security. Exactly. Wow. And I have clients that because of how they did in retirement, they are literally paying every year in taxes their entire Social Security check. Their whole social security. The whole just goes social security. Away. Wow. Now it's, it's not, and, and that's a little inaccurate. But my point is, is that the amount of taxes they're paying is completely equal to the amount of so, or more than the social security they should have been receiving. Wow. And a good portion of it is because of this provisional income calculation. And then if the federal government starts taxing your social security, guess who wasn't far behind? The states. Hmm. So you can see somebody in retirement. Uh, and they're living in a state that taxes Social Security because not all do. Mm-hmm. And they will um, ha- have something occur, maybe a car repair, maybe a new roof, putting a deck on a home, taking their grandkids on vacation. They will take an extra chunk of money out of their retirement accounts, their IRAs, their 401ks. These are what's called qualified. They're qualified for tax deferral. All income coming from them hits your tax return as fully taxable income. This drives up the federal taxes on your social security and can trigger state thresholds to where now the state takes your social security. Uh Okay. So all I have clients who might be living off of 120,000 a year in retirement that puts them in the 22% tax bracket. They take out an extra 10 grand. They're easily still in the 22% tax bracket and they just got jumped to 35% taxes, which is the equivalent of somebody making 500,000 a year. Wow. And it's all because this provisional income calculation. And then they get clipped on that. Oh, yeah. And so um, I don't know how we got from trusts in England over to the, to the uh, <laughs> This is how casual people can get away from uh, get well, away. Well, yeah, yeah. Tax, you, had so. asked, you had asked, how does the normal person, what do they got to do, right? Yeah. So get well, off W-2. You've got, you got to get off W-2, right? Now, if you can't, the very first thing, long before you put a penny into a 401k, and it even gets worse, right? Let's say you're, let's say you're five years away from retiring right now, and you're still, and you're probably at the peak earning mm-hmm. in your entire life. So you're probably putting the most into your 401k than ever before, right? Well, you're literally putting money aside at a lower tax rate today than what it's going to be taxed at when you take it out. Okay. Give me examples of that. Okay. In 2026, Mm -hmm. it's guaranteed for your taxes to go up. Right. You're familiar with that. I mean, I'm just assuming with like, you know, election changes not and even, shit like that. Not even. The, in 2017, Donald Trump got two sets of tax breaks 
push through. One was corporate and one was individual. Mm. Now, there's all these weird machinations that the Senate goes through to get bills passed. He only had enough political clout to get the corporate tax cuts passed on what's called a permanent basis. So it would require an actual law change to right. undo them. Okay. He did not have that ability to do that with the individual tax cuts. So the individual tax cuts got pushed through on a temporary basis. And it expires. They sunset in 2026. Uh... So you, we lose the estate tax. It's going to get cut in half. So right now I think it's like $12 million and I'm not 100% accurate there, but I think it's like $12 million. That's going to get chopped down to like five and a half or six. So when you pass, any, any assets over that dollar value are now going to be taxed at 40%. Wow. Oh, yeah. Is that federal? That's federal. Okay. Um, your individual tax rates right now cut off at 37. They jump up to 39. Hmm. Your standard deduction right now is like 23, 24. It gets cut back down to like 12 and a half. Wow. Okay. So imagine I'm approaching retirement and I'm contributing to my 401k right now. Right. I'm putting money aside today to defer a lower amount of taxes than what I'm going to pay when I take it out. Why would I be doing that? So break that into numbers. So if I put 10000 into my 401k you know, today in 2026, I'm going to have to pay taxes to get I'm that. I'm going to have to pay more taxes to get that ten grand than if I just didn't put it in there at all right now. Because the whole benefit of a 401k is that you're not going to be taxed on it at the same rate. Yeah, the benefit is I'm supposed to be putting money aside today, deferring the taxes on it, not having to pay taxes on it today. Earning money on the government's money, mm-hmm. right? The money that I would have paid in taxes, I now have invested. So I'm getting to earn money on that. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm retired, I'm supposed to be living off less money and being taxed at a lower tax rate. Well, first off, I've never met anyone ever that if they don't have to, lives off less money. <laughs> right? So if I'm comfortable spending 10000 a month before I retire... I assure you after I retire, and it's actually worse because what prevents people from spending money? They're busy as fuck as they Busy as, right? Yes. I love it, right? Now, if I'm not, Let's go what do golf, I do? We're going to go shop. We're going to do this. Right? We're still so, going to spend money. Yeah. I always joke the two busiest people on the planet are the unemployed and the retired. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they seem to be doing the more, most shit ever. Yeah, exactly. Right? Well, that all costs money. Yeah. Right? You ain't retiring and spending less money unless you're broke to begin with. What's up, guys? We're going to take a break really quick because it's 2024, and it's time to talk about something important. When you are seriously hurt, your injury could be worth millions. Yes, that's right. The world is a crazy place, and one person's negligence can result in another's settlement. And that's why I got to talk to you about Morgan & Morgan. Morgan & Morgan is America's largest injury law firm. They have over 100 offices nationwide and over 1,000 lawyers. Yes, these are the big boys. You know them, you see them, you see their billboards all over the world. If you ever drove down I-90 from Florida to New York, I'm telling you, you've seen the billboards, all right? You've, have you ever watched a UFC fight? You've seen them right on the banner. I'm telling you, these are, the, these are the biggest guys in the game, all right? With over $20 billion recovered for over 500,000 clients, Morgan & Morgan has a proven track record of fighting to get you full and fair compensation. The annoying thing with most attorneys is that in order to submit a claim, you got to call them up, you got to talk to their people, you got to go back and forth on the emails, you got to hope that they see it. They might charge you just to even look at their claim. Here's the cool thing with Morgan & Morgan. With eight clicks or less, you can submit a claim and one of their licensed attorneys will take a look at it and get back to you. It's that easy. It's like ordering something off Amazon. It's just a couple clicks. You can submit your claim 
very easily and cheap. Yeah, how about $0? That's how much it costs to submit a claim with Morgan & Morgan. Extremely easy, no fee required. So if you are ever injured, you can go check out Morgan & Morgan. Their fee is free unless they win. That's right, unless they win for you, unless they fight and get you compensation, you're not paying a single dollar. That's a pretty good deal. So for more information, go to forthepeople.com slash Gagnon. That's correct. F-O-R, thepeople.com slash Gagnon. Or dial pound law, that's pound 529 from your cell phone. That's for the people, F-O-R, thepeople.com slash Gagnon. Or dial pound law, pound 529 from your cell phone. This is a paid advertisement. Now let's get back to the show after this short disclaimer. A lot of what I talk about, you have to understand, applies to people that have some amount of assets, some amount of money, right? I'm not mm -hmm. talking about nothing. I, nothing, you know, it, you got to have, really, you got to have money in order for anything that I do to help, right? Right. Um, yeah, so if you're not getting taxed, I don't think. Yeah, there's got to be a certain <laughs> threshold you got to meet in order for any of this to matter to you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's, so in general, in your opinion, the 401k structure as it exists presently is pretty much useless. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we run the numbers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you can, the sooner you, now, the only time in which, there, so there's a caveat to everything, right? There, there's an exception to every rule, right? So let's say um, I was, I did the math and I understood putting money in my 401k is not an effective or worthwhile strategy. But there's something called a backdoor Roth. All right. Now, Democrats are currently trying to get rid of it. Because uh, that's what they love to do, um, but a backdoor Roth is basically just the idea that any amount of money I've set aside to a qualified account, like a four hundred one k or IRA, I can convert to a Roth. Now, what's great about it is contributing to a Roth has all sorts of limitations. If, I, if my income exceeds a certain amount in a certain year, I'm not allowed to contribute to a Roth. All right? Um, well, and then you're limited to the amount you can put in every year. Mm -hmm. Well, with a backdoor Roth, none of those restrictions exist. <laughs> and why does no one know about a backdoor Roth? <laughs> I mean, it's it's a little known, but yeah, not enough people know about it, right? So let's say I was making 500000 a year. Well, I'm not able to contribute to a Roth, mm -hmm. but I can contribute to my 401k or IRA and then take all that and convert it to a Roth. Back to a Roth. Yeah. Well, that's what it's just, it's, it's, yeah, by converting, it's just called a backdoor Roth when you convert your uh, IRA okay. to a Roth. Into the Roth. Got it. Got okay. It, got it. Now, when you do that, you're going to have to pay the taxes, mm -hmm. okay? But we've run the numbers, okay? It, it doesn't matter how much, it, right? We looked at what if I only convert enough to stay within certain tax thresholds? What if mm -hmm. I want to keep, what if I want to convert enough to where I'm just maxing out the amount I can do that keeps me in the 22% tax bracket and doesn't take me to 35 or 37? Yeah, absolute minimum. Doesn't matter, it's you, the, the best thing you can do is to convert 100% of what's in a 401k or an IRA over to a Roth. It doesn't matter if it pings you out at the 37% tax bracket. It does not matter. You're going to be saving more. You're going to end up with way more money in the long run. The reason why is because the sooner you get the money out of the IRA or 401k, which is fully taxable as income, the sooner you get it out of there and you get it to a Roth where you're no longer taxed ever on the gains, 
the better off you are. So anyone with a 401k can open up a backdoor Roth. Correct. It's just a Roth that you convert everything into. Got it. So right. if you're listening and you have a 401k yeah, and, yeah. and you just realize, oh, this is stupid. It, it is absolutely stupid. And it's worth taking the 10% penalty. So if you take money out of a 401k or an IRA before age 59 and a half, you're going to hit with a 10% penalty. I'm not sure if that pertains to a Roth conversion. Uh, I'd, have to, I'd have to look that one up. Got it. Um, even if it does, doesn't matter. Take the 10% penalty, take the tax hit, and convert it over to your, uh, to your Roth. This is not financial advice. Legally, I think yeah, we have legally, to say yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Without, without, without. I don't yeah, know the yeah. laws on that. I've never done that <laughs> well, before. I, I do. But I it do. sounded so cool let me, to say. No, yeah. So, you know, it, you know, well, you're totally correct. And I'm glad you said that. Yes. Because um, without me knowing your specific situation, I can't truly tell you you should do something or yeah, not. Right? But stop being a broke bum and get to it. You know Abs- what I mean? Absolutely. But also, this is not financial advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely not. But it's not. that's a very specific thing that anybody, even if they're a W-2 person, uh, can do today to drastically improve uh, their financial future. Okay. That's to contribute to a Roth and convert as much from an IRA or 401k over to a Roth as possible, is there as fast as possible. Anything else for a W-2 person to do to lower their tax burden? They St- Start a side gig. Okay, so I'm working at Target. Yep. I have a 401k, yep. hypothetically. Yep. I just converted it to a Roth. Yep, good, now I'm, good first step. That's a good first step, yep. okay? Now I got to start a side gig. What's an, exa- what's an example of that? Like if I'm like a video editor, if I'm a videographer, something a- like that? Anything. Take your hobby. Mm-hmm. Take your hobby and monetize it. Now here's the good thing about the tax code. You don't have to turn a profit. You have to be attempting to turn a profit. Oh. <laughs> I like that. That's sick. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, and, and, and they can't force you to turn a profit because that shit's difficult. Yeah. Right? You know. You, you own your own business, right? You're running a podcast, right? I, I'm bleeding money. Bleeding money, <laughs> right? So that, that's, the IRS can't tell you you're not allowed to keep trying. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's the whole backbone of like American capitalism. Yeah, keep on trying. Yeah, never yeah. stop trying. Yeah. So create a side gig, um, which is going to create the opportunity for you to, to to generate certain deductions that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Now, if I'm creating a side gig, should I open up an LLC? Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you're again. I can't give. Like that would fall into something you'd have to talk to like your CPA about. This is where it gets too specific depending on what your side. <clears throat> yeah, but is. but just whether or not you have an LLC or or a C corp with an S election, you're probably even your LLC is probably going to have an S election, um, mm-hmm. which is just going to flow the income through to you as the taxpayer. Got um, it. So it doesn't it doesn't really, uh, yeah, it doesn't really matter. So then should the overall goal of having the side gig be no longer to be a W-2 employee and just be a sole proprietor of your own thing? I mean, if you can eventually get there, right? Mm-hmm. In the meantime, it's just an excellent way to create deductions uh, to offset your other income. Can you give an example of that? Um, <laughs> Legally, you can't. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, right? So, so when, you're, when you're trying to – when you're owning your own business and you're trying to – Tr- you're you're trying to get it off the ground, right? Uh, maybe you're driving a lot of places, mm-hmm. right? Well, now you get to deduct, uh, what, I don't know, 59 and a half cents or something. They change it every year uh, uh, per mile that you drove, right? I understand. Right? Now I can deduct half my meals. I understand because they're all work-related. Well, of course they're all work-related. Of course they are. Is there <laughs> something in your eye? You keep, I feel like you keep on blinking. <laughs> of course they are. Is there dust in here? Of course they're all work-related. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? 
I understand. Right? Now, the one thing, too, that the IRS does a fantastic job of is scaring the shit out of people. Yeah, bro. I've heard they have, like, four employees in South Florida. They could just go knock on doors and shit. Like Probably way more than four. Like, I, apparently, who was it? The, like, this last administration hired, like, 80,000? 80,000. 80,000. I'm scared of the IRS, dude. 80, that most people are. There's no need. I'm not. Okay. I'm scared. Look, uh, what, what, who's the last guy that went to prison for tax evasion, right? Jordan Belfort. Jordan Belfort? I don't know if that's true. No, no, that was a tax. <laughs> I mean, they might have got him on some tax evasion. That guy's awesome. One of my all-time favorite people. Um, no, but like what? Wesley Snipes or something, right? Didn't he go to prison for tax evasion? Right? Like Look, that. the only time you get in trouble is when you're like blatantly doing illegal things mm-hmm. and you refuse to acknowledge it and continue not to pay. Okay. Right? Now, is any of your listeners going to do that? Hopefully not, right? What you're going to do is within the best of your abilities, you're going to do your taxes, right? And if the IRS on the 0.0036% chance audits you, is going to tell you what you did wrong and you're not going to be a jerk about it. You're going to be like, oh, my bad, you know, and you're going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And there might be some minor penalty or fee and you're going to roll on. Okay, so I'm not going to go to jail if no. there's if I if I accidentally mess something up. No, of course not. Because I've heard this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but apparently the tax code is intentionally nebulous and convoluted in order to preserve the interests of like these large tax conglomerates that do taxes for people, a la TurboTax things like that. Yeah, I mean that probably falls more to the conspiracy theory line of things. In reality, what happens is some lobbyist is paid by somebody to get a law passed that creates some provision within the tax code. Mm. And uh, and by the way, um, these people, right, when they write this stuff, it's like trying to figure out every conceivable uh, scenario, right? You're never going to do it, mm-hmm. right? So it gets written. Uh, the, the, law, the, the law gets passed. Tax code gets written into the tax code. Well, now no one knows exactly what to do with it. I'll give you a quick example. Um, when the tax when the tax cuts of 2017 got uh, changed, um, it impacted the language regarding what's called intangible drilling costs. So this is the second step of if you want to convert your IRA to a Roth and you want to do it at a high level, okay? Um, and I'm not saying this is not financial advice. No, never. Okay? Mm-mm. I've seen people convert their 401k to an IRA – Take a home equity line of credit out, take that money, invest it in a oil partnership, and get what's called intangible drilling costs. Okay. What is that? All right. So you, for every dollar that you put into an oil investment, uh, you're going to give about 80 to 85 cents of IDCs or intangible drilling costs. You can also get some bonus depreciation. Essentially bringing you to 100, okay? So now on your tax return, you get the 1099-R from the company you did the 401k conversion. You took money out of your 401k or IRA. Mm-hmm. That, that triggers a 1099-R being issued to the IRS and to you mm-hmm. showing that you have that amount of income. So if you did $100,000, mm-hmm. you're going to get a 1099-R for 100 grand. It's going to go on your tax return creating $100,000 worth of taxable income. Right. you got to pay taxes on that. Correct. Now you take out a home equity line of credit for 120000 You invest that into a oil partnership. You're going to get 100000 or more in IDCs. That's going to also hit your tax return. 
and now you pay no taxes on your conversion. Because the IDC. The IDCs offset the taxes that were generated. <laughs> and how hard is it to invest in an oil partnership? Not hard at all. How do you do that? Like, well, there's numerous companies out there that, uh, um, like, if I were to Google oil partnership, US Energy, US okay. Energy is a great one. Invito. Um, and when you say invest, you mean just like, yeah, you're gonna they have they have uh, they have programs set up for you to stroke them a check uh, as an investment. So now you own part of the the general partnership that's doing the oil well drilling. All right, um, you're gonna get the IDCs in year two. They're gonna convert you from the general partnership to a limited partnership so that you can start receiving the income from the oil investment. Like a dividend, basically? Yeah, basically, right? Uh, they call it a royalty. Okay. So now this income comes to you. What's really great about oil income is 15% of it's tax-free. Hmm. So then you only have the 85% hitting your tax return as income. But you got all the you got that initial investment to offset whatever taxes you had that first year. Mm. All right. Why don't we talk about this? Ways you can well that that's like that's like level two, right? So the very first thing like is just to get your 401k and IRA out of that and into a Roth. Yeah. If you want to do it in a real smart way, you're gonna do you're gonna piggyback an investment into oil on top of it. Oh, so my point was in 2017, when they changed the tax code, they they screwed up the language. So previous to 2017, it was unlimited how much you could do to offset your taxes. Oh, wow. After 2017, there's confusion. Half, half of the CPAs specializing in oil and gas investments think it's still unlimited. That's not good. Well, I mean, it, it, no, it is or it isn't. The other half thinks it's now limited to 250000 for a single individual and half a million for a married couple. Okay. So this is the problem with the way these laws get passed. Some lobbying group gets paid to change the to, to funnel money to a politician and they craft the rule the, or the law. The law gets passed. It creates the code and the tax. Well, and there's all these unforeseen consequences and now people don't know what to do. So then, and this is, now this is specifically done this way. What happens is someone will continue to provide, they'll, they'll take an unlimited tax deduction on an oil investment. Right, they'll invest a million dollars and they'll take the whole million. If the IRS thinks that it should be limited to half a million for a couple and two hundred fifty thousand for an individual, then the IRS is going to take them to court or audit them, and then if they want to fight it, go to court. But is it clear if it's limited? No, or not? it's not clear. So this you... is how it gets clear. This um... is the problem with the whole system. The way it gets clear is by going to court, and then it gets fought out in the court system. That yeah. seems absurd. It's totally absurd. But why not just make the law clear about what it has because to be? It, because it's not possible. Because no one's intelligent enough to think of every conceivable scenario and interpretation that something can be, right? So there's accidentally a fray in the language. Always, always. I mean, just, just right, you would think that in the Second Amendment, right, what does it say about the Second Amendment? Shall not be infringed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems pretty clear, right? Seems clear to me. Don't, don't step on the Second Amendment. And how many laws have been passed infringing on it? Hmm. Because they're going to say, well, there's a comma, and that comma means that that next sentence doesn't apply to the first one. I mean, whatever. They come up, right? Uh, another great example is abortion. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not going to get into the politics of it. Uh, but the Supreme Court, when they ruled on it, said that within the penumbra of the Constitution. Well, how many people even know what that word means? It means within the shadows. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're literally telling me you're literally just making shit up out of nowhere. <laughs> right. Within the shadows of the text. Like we're not even like right. we're so far off the reservation at that point. Right. Right. This so, is where people are arguing the spirit of the law yeah, versus co- the letter. Of correct. The law. Correct. So, so if I get to say within the shadows of the text, uh, I don't have to pay taxes mm. <laughs> or within the shadows of the text. I do. Right? I mean, it's all, to, it's all nonsense. And then you right? go to court, you can argue it. And, and if so, you're ready to battle, then you can win. Exactly. But you've got to, you've got to have the pockets to fight the IRS, right? This is the whole problem with our current governmental system, hmm. right? When the government wants to sue you, they have the unlimited resources, right? You don't. Right. Unless, unless you're the you know, super wealthy. Well, yeah. So, um, so it's great last year. Um, there, there's, there's all these strategies that the IRS puts on their dirty dozen list. They're called known transactions. Okay. Uh, meaning that they're known to be used fraudulently right now. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're illegal. They're in the tax code. They can't be illegal if they're in the tax code. Okay. What's an example of these? Known uh, transactions? an example of one is, um, a micro captive reinsurance company. Okay. So this is a, this is a fantastic example. All right. For a number of reasons. So <clears throat> let's just take a 401k. Um, and if, all right. So one of, the, one of the best things you can do is just stop looking at things the way that you're told to look at them. Okay. And just break them down as to what the benefits and negatives are, right? Everything has pros and everything has cons, mm-hmm. right? So what, one of my favorite, I uh, mean, I, I think it is it the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, yeah, Mark Manson. Yeah. <clears throat> is that the book where he says, um, no matter what you choose, it comes with a set of problems. Mm-hmm. And so th- one of the great ways to make a decision is look at which problems you want to deal with. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. And pick that. Path. Yeah, you create a problem matrix. Yes. Yeah. So when it comes to when it comes to the tax code, what I do is I just take a section of it and I make a simple T graph with a plus and a minus. Mm. And then I write down what are the pros and what are the cons. Right. I don't care what it's called. I don't care what their intentions for it were. I just want to know what are the benefits of me doing this? What are the negatives of me doing this? Mm. So if you do this with a 401k, right, uh, you get a defer income. Great. That's in the plus category. Well, what's the negative? The negative is when it comes out, it's fully taxed as income. That's not good. Another negative is it's tied up to line 59 and a half. Stupid. Right. Another negative is I have limited investment options. Mm-hmm. Another negative is I'm limited to only being able to borrow 50000 a year or one half the value. Right. Another negative is <clears throat> I'm capped as the amount of money I can put in. Right. Right? And the overall taxation might be more than what it would be if today if I took it out. Uh, and, and I'll guarantee it is. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's a lot right. of negatives. A host of them. Yeah. Right? Now, uh, also if I'm an employer, uh, 401ks fall under ERISA laws, which is the Employment Something Act. Mm-hmm. All right? So- um, if I have highly compensated employees, people making over 150000 a year, and they're contributing to their 401k, but my, my lower-waged employees are not, well, now my highly compensated employees can't either. I have to kick money out of the plan back to them, which is going to screw them up tax-wise, or I have to, out of my own pocket, 
fund my lower wage employees 401k plans even more. So it's costing you even more money. Even more money. Just to help these people. Correct. Wow. Okay. Now, set that aside. That's all right. So a 401k, most people don't even know why it's called that. Right. But it's literally Title 26, Section 401, Paragraph K. That's where the name comes from. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, I wish they would just call everything by its section of the tax code. I think it would help people get away from their own preconceived ideas and biases. Right, because the words carry loaded meanings. They do. They do, right? Life insurance? Stop calling it life insurance. That's section 702 of the tax code. Mm -hmm. If I called it a 702 or a 702J plan, right, and I call this a 401K plan, right, I can start to get away from the names and the meanings that I carry with the names and just look at... What, what the what, what the, the pros and cons the actually pros and cons are. of it are, right? Okay. So if I move from Section 401K over to Section 831 of the tax code, now there's A, B, and C. There are three different types. I go to Section B. And I just do the same thing, create a T-graph, the pluses and the minuses of an 831B. Well, I can also defer income from taxes. Okay. Just like I did with a 401k. That's a plus. Well, with a 401k, I'm limited to 23000 up to 30000 mm-hmm. With my 831B... I'm limited to 2.5 million. Okay. So that's already better than this 401k. <laughs> I mean, if I own a company, how many years do I got to sock 23 to 30 grand aside for that to matter to me? Yeah. I mean, you'll die before it happens. Exactly. Right. 2.5 million a year, on the other hand, that's pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, cash is king in a business, cash flow is king. So to tie up money till I'm 59 and a half, that could suck. Yeah. Right. With an 831B, my money's tied up for 12 months. Hey, that's starting to sound a little bit better, mm-hmm. right? When the money comes out of a 401K, it's fully taxable as income. When the money comes out of an 831B plan, it's taxed at long-term capital gains rates. So you just pay capital gains tax on it. Which is 0, 15, or 20%. So I just went from a max of 37 and in 2026, 39, mm-hmm. down to 20. Okay, but there's going to be a catch with this. Right? There's got. There's no way that it's just o- way better than this 401k. It is, it is, and there's no catch. What's up, guys? We're going to take a break really quick because we got to talk about your amazing dick game. Yes, you. You right now, listen to my voice, my deep, soothing voice. You have an amazing dick game. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you know someone with an amazing dick game. Maybe you got a boyfriend. Who knows? But if you have an amazing dick game, there's a way that you can make it better. And that's with the good people over at Blue Chew. Mm -hmm. Blue Chew is an amazing service that basically delivers a chewable tablet that has the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, all that stuff. But this is the chew. It's at a fraction of a cost. And it's never been easier to get your hands on the greatest dick game of your life. Mm -hmm. Never been easier. I'm telling you. You can go to bluechew.com. And you can submit all your information to a licensed person, a legit person, that will then mail you a discreet, very unassuming a very, very powerful package. You know what I'm talking about? The powerful package to your home. That's how easy it is. You don't got to go talk to a doctor and be like, yeah, you know, I want, no, nope, easy. You got to just go on the internet. Yo, bluechew.com, I want to get the best dick given of my life. And that's how you do it. Easy as that. And for the listeners of this show, of this program, you are going to get free first month of Blue Chew. Mm-hmm. You're going to be getting Blue Chew for free. All you got to do is pay $5 shipping. That's a cup of coffee. Black to be delivering that BBC. You know what I'm saying? That's bluechew.com, B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com. Use the promo code GAGNON, G-A-G-N-O-N, and receive your first month 
for free. That's bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And thank you so much, Blue Chew. I'm telling you, man, check out this product. Even if you're one of these people that's like, oh, I don't know, I don't really need it. What are you talking about? It could be better. It can always be better. Let's say you're in the 1%, you're about to be in the 0.01% with Blue Chew. Now let's get back to the show. And so is there a name for this? Is there a casual there, Well, name? there is. There is a name for it. It's called a micro-captive reinsurance company. Okay, so micro meaning small. Yeah. So that's, you're limited to 2.5 million. <laughs> okay. That's small. Okay. Okay. It's captive, meaning it only insures a single entity. Okay. That's your primary business. Mm-hmm. So let's say we created a micro-captive for your podcast. All right. It's going to insure your podcast. All right. Now, um, <clears throat> why would the IRS allow you to create your own insurance company to insure you? It's specifically for what's called fortuitous risk. Uh, fortuitous just meaning not likely to happen, but if it does, it's expensive. Mm. Okay. If something's not likely to happen and if it does, it's expensive, the odds are there might not be a marketplace for me to go out there and find insurance for that. Mm. But you still have a right as a business owner to protect your business. So they make this caveat that says you can basically insure yourself. Insure yourself. For the super unlikely thing. Correct. Wow. Okay. Now, what's super funny about that is even though it's supposed to be for super unlikely things, uh, <laughs> we would insure people against government shutdowns. Which is pretty unlikely. Well, the IRS <laughs> said it was so unlikely, it's not a legitimate thing to insure yourself against. Really? Yep. Okay. They fought it all the time. Wow. Well, what happened in 2020? <laughs> Can't fight me on it anymore. Wow. The government went and shut everybody down. So there's precedent. Absolutely. But but there didn't need to be because it's fortuitous risk. Yeah, it's already a nebulous right? term in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Okay? So, so if I'm a business owner and I'm trying to figure out what I should do to help myself in retirement, why is my CPA not coming to me and telling me I need to create an 831B plan? I feel like you want me to say it's because CPAs are all fucking stupid. <laughs> but I'm not going to say that, okay? Because I have a CPA that I like, all right? So I'm not going to say that. But I feel like that's what you want me to say, okay? No. No, if, uh, <laughs> if you knew how little he was helping you, you wouldn't like it. <laughs> so is, is it uh, your, your opinion that most CPAs are pretty much useless? It's not that they're useless, right? So one of my, one of my favorite sayings is to tell people I can trust everyone. Everyone. Mm-hmm. just as soon as I figure out who you are, mm-hmm. right? I can trust a liar to be a liar. Yep. I can trust a thief to be a thief, mm-hmm. right? The problem comes when I refuse to acknowledge that a liar is a liar or a thief is a thief, mm-hmm. right? So what is a CPA to you? What, what do most people think their CPA is, right? They always complain and whine that their CPA is not saving them taxes. He's not there to save you taxes. What is he there for? He's there to act as a historian and take all the bullshit numbers you give him at the end of the year and plug it into some software and tell you how much money you owe the government. That's it. Mm-hmm. Just one step shy, useless. <laughs> okay. So you would say they're like technicians generally. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to put them down. I employ a bunch of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So yeah, but the, but if assuming again, we're not talking about the good ones, all right? We're talking about just like a general. I'm just saying, just in general, general yeah. CPA and might I be should, a I shouldn't shit on, right? It's a bad, it's a horrible industry. Um, there's nowhere near enough people going to school for it. Hmm. Okay, we have a huge shortage of CPAs in this country right now. Really? All right, yeah. And so I, I don't want to be shitting on them, but 
what, what is it that, that a business owner truly needs? They need a tax strategist. Yeah, you need someone that's going to basically look through the tax code and be like, hey, we can save you money here. We can do a little thing Correct. here, get you some cash Correct. here. Somebody that can actually understand all these different sections and figure out what's going to apply to you, right? Well, the problem is, let's just go back to that 831B for a second. How does moving $2.5 million, how, how does that actually work where I move the $2.5 million from my primary business to my 831B plan? I do that by selling myself an insurance policy. So my insurance company sells my primary company insurance policies. The, the premium for those insurance policies is a payment from my primary business to my 831B plan. Mm-hmm. An insurance payment, you're allowed to deduct as an expense from your business. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, is good shit, huh? this is very clever. Now, why? But, but, but most people would think, well, if I, make, if I own two companies mm-hmm. and company A makes a payment to company B... Well, all I did is take $2.5 million in revenue from here and assign $2.5 million in revenue to my other company. It's going to have to pay taxes on that. Exactly. So this is where you got to understand certain industries have superpowers. That's the best way I can describe it. Banking, which you asked me if, we were, if I was willing to talk about. But everybody, some people are familiar with banking superpower. That's fractional lending. Mm-hmm. Okay. The ability to basically loan money you don't have, mm-hmm. right? It's a pretty neat trick. Mm-hmm. I'd love to be able to do it. <laughs> um, oil, which is the intangible drilling cost. It's the most powerful offset to all other income. This is this IDC the investment IDCs. thing we're talking Correct. about. Correct. Insurance. When you make a – when okay, so let's say you owned a widget-making company, and I bought 10,000 widgets from you. That $10,000, and, and so basic algebra, right? $10,000 is revenue to your company. Mm-hmm. Revenue minus expenses equals profit. Profit equals taxes. Yes. In the simplest form. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know that with algebra, if I change any one component of that equation, what happens to my result? It changes. Mm-hmm. So if the first thing going in, the $10,000, mm-hmm. if it's not revenue, then minus expenses, it ain't profit, which means it doesn't create taxes. There's only one type of company on the planet that gets to receive money from a client, and it's not called revenue. And that's insurance. That's insurance. Wow. What is it? What is it called? Well, so what, when an when a insurance company takes your premium from you, what, what is occurring? They're, they're incurring a future risk or liability, Right. They took that premium payment from you, and it might be $200 for the month for your car. But you could snort four lines of blow and launch your car over a hill into a busload of kids or some horrible, tragic thing. <laughs> okay. <Right>? Whatever. You <laughs> could do something really screwed up with your yeah, car. Yeah. And now how much money is the insurance company on the hook for? They, now it's a liability. I paid millions of dollars. Way beyond your monthly so insurance that, payment. So that wasn't revenue. That was risk. That's risk. And so how are you going to tax me on this guy's risk? Exactly, because I don't know what it's going to, what the cost is yet. Wow. Because it's going to occur at a future date. Plus, that, that, that liability could be much greater than the amount of money you paid me, which means I have to have what in order to cover it? I have to have reserves. So the insurance companies are allowed to take wow. money, not pay taxes on it, invest that money, and not pay taxes on that either. 
Wow. Oh, yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. Okay, so just let me explain it kind of okay. like simple right. just to see Hit if me. I'm, if I'm getting me. it. So if you're an insurance company, I like I said, I sell insurance. You're basically giving me money. If the government taxed me on what you gave me, I could never operate a successful insurance company Correct. because if something happened to you and for yep. whatever I insured you for, yep. I wouldn't be able to cover because the government's taking whatever Correct. percent. Correct. So the government doesn't tax it because it's risk. Correct. And then as a result, I just have all this untaxed money yes. that then I can invest. I can do whatever the fuck I want with. Absolutely. And then I can get a percentage on that. Yes. And for whatever reason, I'm able to not get taxed on whatever I make. Yeah. So as an well, insurance company. Well, in, until the money leaves your 831B plan. And so every insurance company operates on an 831B? No, no, no. 831B is a specific type of insurance company. Okay, so that's just for it's the sole. It's called a micro-captive reinsurance company. Oh, There's other types awesome. of captives that are not micro. Okay. There's other types of captives that are not reinsurance. Okay. And then there's full-blown insurance companies. There's lots of, and sure. every one of these is governed by a different section within Title 26. So let's just talk about these micro ones. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. this is where you're talking about, okay, I have business A that has a million dollars in Correct. it. Correct. Can it be $10,000? Like, is there a cutoff for this? Well, I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't, there, there's no real cutoff other than the max of 2.5, but like there comes a point to where it doesn't make any sense to do 10 grand. Got it. Okay. Right. Like I'm just we, trying to think for the average person listening, they probably have a $10,000 business and not a million dollar no, business. No, no, yeah, sure, but let's say let's say you had 100 grand that was going to get taxed at the 35% tax bracket. That sucks. Yeah, so you could take that 100 grand mm-hmm. buy $100,000 worth of insurance from your micro captive tax free. Well, the hundred grand is going to come off your book, so now it's not taxed at thirty-five percent anymore, and, and the remaining portion of your income is taxed at that rung below. The hundred grand comes over to your insurance company; it's not taxed at all because I'm not. That's not income. It's that's not, not revenue. That's risk. The insurance company is going to invest that money in liquid assets, so a brokerage account of some sort, so things in the stock market. Now, it can be anything that's that's liquid and and publicly traded, right? So you could have a bond portfolio. If, if you don't want risk, you could have a bond portfolio. You could have a dividend-producing portfolio. Or you could throw that 100 grand into some crazy uh, biotech startup stock if you want. High to. risk, whatever. Yeah, 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 right? Now, at the end of that policy's term, which generally speaking is 12 months, the policy terminates. And that money now gets converted to what's called excess. All right? Now... The insurance company has to keep a certain amount of its assets still liquid to handle claims. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it, it doesn't have to have liquid. So just use numbers again. I had 100000 yeah, I moved it 40, over. Th- maybe 40000 stays liquid okay. to handle claims. And 60000 can now be invested in an illiquid asset. Now, let me, let me take you to this. Ready? You ready for step two here? All right. Because all this is about layers. It's just layers, layers, right? And so let's say you got people that like to invest in real estate. Well, in real estate, if I have a capital gain, so I buy a piece of real estate, I improve it, and I want to sell it, now I have a capital gain, I'm going to have to pay capital gains taxes, most likely at a federal estate level. Uh, then there's also a 3.8% uh, surcharge for the Affordable Care Act if your capital gains and your income's over a certain level. So it can get 29% pretty easy or more if you're in stupid states like New York or California. Now, um, what if my primary business has built up some cash in an 831B and now my 831B buys the real estate 
and improves it and sells it, those capital gains are held inside my 831B. <laughs> I didn't have to do, are you familiar with the 1031 exchange at all? So in real estate, uh, if I buy a property and I have capital gains and I don't want to realize those capital gains and pay the taxes, I can within, I have a certain amount of t- time. It's like 145 days to identify the next property and then a certain amount of days to close. It has to be like kind. Yeah. I don't have to follow any of those rules. I can buy my 831B, my insurance company can buy an investment property. It can realize a gain. It doesn't have to have another property. It doesn't have to roll it over. It doesn't, it can, it can hold that capital gain. It can just, it can hold that capital gain as excess reserves until you find another property you want to buy. So what a, what a much better vehicle to do real estate investments. Right. If you have 145 days and you have to find something similar to what you just yeah. had, your options are now so small. Absolutely. But all of a sudden you can wait seven years. Yeah, who the, cares? The Nobody market cares dips. Anymore. You yeah. can buy a bunch yeah. of things. Whatever you want to do. And now we're, we were using an example of 100,000, but yeah. now what if you're using 50 million? All well, of a sudden. So remember, a, uh, sorry, a micro captive is limited to 2.5 per year. Sorry. But so, you can do 2.5 per year for 10 years. So now you got I have 25 million in 25 it. mil, and then you have your excess on the 25 mil, and now you can start buying. Right, just whatever you want, right? Wow. This is very clever. And, and it doesn't have to be just real estate. <laughs> okay. Right. What if, what if I've been funneling money to my A1B, and then I suffer some kind of down, economic downturn in my primary business? Well, my 831B can make a loan. Because <laughs> yeah, it's insuring it, right? Well, I mean, not, not just because it wants to. Just because it exists. Just because it exists. Just because it's sitting here and it's holding all this cash reserves, it can then make a loan to my primary business, or it can make an investment in the primary, my primary business. Either one, take your pick. Hmm. doesn't matter. Oh, and by the way, if I make a loan to my primary business, where's that interest going? Oh, back to me. So you're paying yourself... Wow. Okay, right? now, but you still have the obligation as a micro-insurance to insure your own business. Absolutely. So it what is. if this fortuitous thing that you have on your actual business now has to be realized by the insurance company that you've created for yourself? Yeah, so this is this is beautiful, and this is a little bit hard in a, uh, without a monitor and a screen to be able to show people numbers. But so if you go back to what an 831B specifically is a micro-captive reinsurance company. So, uh, and I'm not trying to sit on here and sell microcap reinsurance companies. I'm using this as an example to people, mm-hmm. right? Uh, people are always like, well, why can you do things my CPA can't? I'm like, well, the tax code involves things like insurance. And if you don't understand insurance law, just because you're a CPA, you're not going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, a microcap reinsurance company is on the IRS's dirty dozen list. It's on the known transaction list. They hate you doing them. They had 12 teams designed specifically to investigate and sue people to do these. They disbanded them last year. They lost two consecutive cases back to back and gave up. So the IRS doesn't like it because it takes money out of their pocket. You know, so- I, I, you know I, don't, I don't actually know why they don't like it. There's one thing I can't figure out about the IRS is it's like your job's not to run around fucking the American people. Right. Right. And yet they act like it is, mm-hmm. right? And I don't get that, right? It's like your job should be to help us make sure we're following the tax code as correctly as possible. And as long as we are, you should be perfectly okay with whatever the outcome is, right? If there's something in the tax code that lets me never pay a penny of taxes, your job as the IRS should be just to make sure that that's being done correctly, not to be 
uh, like right now they've submitted two different sets of rule changes to try and change the rules to eliminate certain strategies from being done. Hmm. Like, like who went and made you in charge of trying to fleece the American people? Like, right. like that's not your job. Your job is to enforce the tax code, not propose rule changes that screw Americans over and make us pay more taxes. Like, it's such a weird constant, like, mindset to me that they operate with. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, sorry. This, we yeah, got off track. So, just to, uh, like, if you have to insure your own company, Correct. what happens when you have to well, do that? Well, so this is a micro-captive reinsurance. So, reinsurance means there's a primary insurer. And underneath that is a bunch of other little insurance companies, these companies, that act as the risk pool, okay? So let's say you bought a policy for 100 grand. That's going to give you, or let's say you bought a policy for 50 grand. Make this easy math. When I send the 50,000 over to my micro-captive, I'm going to get a policy that's going to insure me for $200,000 of claims, all right? Now... The way the claim thing breaks down is the primary insurance company, they're going to they're gonna be on the hook for 10%. I'm going to have a deductible at 10%. So there's 20, right? My insurance company is going to be on the hook for half. Now, what did it pay or what did it receive? It received 50 grand. It received half of the 100 that it's on the hook for. Mm-hmm. So it's on the hook for that 50%, the same amount of money it got. Mm-hmm. The primary insurance company is on the hook for 10%. I'm on the hook for 10% as a deductible, which you just don't pay because it's to you. Mm-hmm. And the risk pool is on the hook for 30. So if you just do some, some math, let's say there's um, you know, 200 companies in the risk pool and you have a claim that puts 30,000 onto that risk pool. Well, each company is only liable for 150 bucks. It's <laughs> not awesome. And do you get to choose your risk pool? Uh, well, you're choosing it by the policies. You're in, if you select a policy for government shutdown, you're in a risk pool with everybody else who has the government shutdown listed. If you're uh, for brand damage, you're in a risk pool with everybody else with brand damage. Got it. So you're almost making like bets based off the category you're choosing to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean kind of. That's a way to put it. Right? Interesting. Does it matter which thing? No, no because, because it's all structured in a way to where short of something really wild and weird happening, um, and I've been doing this for years, and I've never seen the claims be more than a few hundred dollars Wow! to any one person in the risk pool. Now, what percentage would you say, without personal experience, if you had to guess, of ultra-wealthy people have some version of an insurance thing kind of working in their favor? Uh, I wouldn't know what percentage, but there are tens of thousands of these. Hmm. Okay. Um, Seems actually kind of small, to be honest. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. There might be more. I don't. I don't really have any idea. Um, but I will tell you that you have interacted with them multiple times in your life, and you just don't know it. Okay. Every time you're offered an extended warranty program from a dealership, mm-hmm. you're dealing with one of their captive yeah, insurance companies. Yeah, those people have been trying to call me recently <laughs> for your extended home yeah, warranty. Exactly. They've been trying. When to you're at me. Best Buy and they're trying to get you to pay extra money to cover your fridge. Or your uh, PlayStation. I buy an electronic and they have some warranty yep. attached to it. All those extra warranties are all done through their captive insurance company. Uh, okay. This is all very clever. Yeah. Dental insurance. If you go to the dentist and they offer you dental insurance, that's done through that dental company's captive insurance. Wow. Right? Yeah. This is fun. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is fun. Yeah. Oh, I like this. Yeah. No, it's 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 powerful, right? But but again, why isn't your CPA telling you about this? Well, your CPA doesn't understand insurance law. Right. You have to have an intersection. Correct. You do. Right. And so that's the whole that was the whole basis behind Alfi, and not to give myself a cheap plug, but um, in so somebody in the 1600s once said there's only two business models: bundling and unbundling. So you can be in and out. Are you familiar with in and out? Yeah. Right? Where it's burgers, fries, and shakes. Yep. Or you can be Sonic or Jack in the Box, where they have a menu the size of the Library of Congress. <laughs> right? Which one do you want to be? Well, usually in a situation like that, most I'm guessing in and outs more profitable. They're way more efficient. I mean, the other day I pulled into a Sonic, I left before I even ordered. Right. Like it just takes them so much time. Right, because they have t- way too many menu items. They have way too much going on. It also takes you a long time to choose. <laughs> exactly, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> um, so in most cases, being bundled or unbundled doesn't really matter. It's just your preference as a business owner as to what you want to do. Do you want to be a, a, a specialist in a single thing or do you want to be a generalist, right? Uh, which, by the way, the quote, um, a uh, what's the quote? A, um, to be a master of one. Oh, yeah, jack of all trades. Uh, jack of all, yes. Yeah, that, jack of all trades, master of none yes. is the quote that everyone knows. Yes, and that's completely wrong. You familiar with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. No, hold on, but t- tell, tell, tell me. Uh, well, I'm trying to remember the exact wording to it, but it's uh, uh, jack of all trades is better than a master, uh, can be better than a master of, or is a master of none, but but oftentimes better than a master of one. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's that's the final part of that quote. Which is funny that people just cut the quote off in the middle. They do. And they they go, do, and it, and it completely changes the meaning of it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things that I recognized early on was that in the financial world in particular, everybody being siloed, your insurance guy, your CPA, your investment advisor, your attorneys, them being siloed is extremely damaging to the client. All right? And I'll just give you a quick example. Are you familiar with infinite banking? Mm-mm. Infinite banking is uh, the idea of using um, permanent life insurance um, to become your own bank. And um, life insurance, obviously, if you die, most a people think of it as if you die, and that's because in this, I think it was the '70s when term insurance got invented, and it very quickly became the most popular form of insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, before term was permanent, and permanent just means that as long as I pay my premiums, that policy stays in force no matter how old I get. Whereas term. I don't think there's a single company that offers a term policy that lasts past age 85. Okay. Most terminate at 80. Sure. Okay. Um, and, and it's very affordable. Uh, it's what you think of if you need a, you're married and you want to make sure that if something happens to you, the house is paid off, your kid's college is paid for, that's what term is for. Now, the ultra wealthy don't ever do that. They use permanent insurance. Okay. And I can get into all the superpowers of, of I mean, life insurance is probably the single most powerful tool there is. Oh, yeah. Wait, it's, it's incredible. All right. Well, that's a whole nother. I don't know how much, <laughs> how much more time we got. So usually it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter if you're not bundled together. Yes. Right? In the financial world, the problem is that everybody's separate. They're siloed. Um, because of that, there's no communication as to how um, – their different professions actually tie together via the tax code. And even worse is just human nature, right? 
So I'd ask you if you were familiar with infinite banking. Infinite banking is an incredible concept. I think life insurance is one of the most powerful tools somebody can use. Mm -hmm. But if you're my wealth manager and I'm the client and I got a life insurance guy and he tries to pitch me on moving 50,000 a year into life insurance, well, where's that 50,000 coming from? It's coming from you. Out of my pocket. Yeah. yeah, because you're making fees on that money you're managing for me. So I don't so, want you to do that. I don't want you to do life insurance. Of course insurance. you don't want me to do that. So when I come to you and I say, hey, I got this guy trying to convince me to do 50,000 life insurance. What do you think? Nah, that's a bad idea. All, always and forever. Yeah. Right? Now, if on the other hand, you have a team and that team is an insurance guy, an investment manager, an attorney, and a CPA, and they've built a plan for you. They understand all these things. Holistically. Correct. Yeah. And they come to you and say, hey, you should put 50000 year into life insurance. Nobody's fighting. It's like a body. Like, yeah. if, if I have, like, a shoulder doctor that yeah. I'm paying residuals every month, and I'm like, hey, my ankle doctor says yeah. I got to go pay money. No, no, like, no, no. Don't pay him money. Pay me. No, your ankle. Uh, turns out your ankle's hurting because uh, your shoulder's <laughs> off. And let me just work more on your shoulder, and that'll fix your ankle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So it's all part of one body. And so if you're able to have a team of people that are all working together that all know the different laws, all Absolutely. of a sudden now you can get way better financial health than if you're all siloed and no one's talking to each other and at odds with each other. Absolutely. Because it's right. What What is it like? It's not my idea. It's not a good idea. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're taking money from me. It can't be a good idea. Yeah. Right. Um, so, I, you know, it's funny. I have clients all the time. They're like, well, can I keep using my CPA? Sure. But you won't. Why won't I? Oh, you just won't. Everyone's siloed. Everyone's not talking to each other. Holistically, your yeah. financial health is at, is at risk. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're competing against each other to be the smartest person in the room, to be mm -hmm. the most valuable person to you. They're competing with each other to get your money, right? And, and so you as the client just end up getting screwed, right? And so I have people all the time, they're like, hey, can I, can I keep my CPA? Can I keep my investment advisor? And I'm just like, yeah, sure, if you want it, but you're not going to. Right, right, you're not going to use them because no. we have everything. Well, uh, and they're going to fire you. That's the funniest <laughs> part about it, right? Right. So I had this client. Uh, we structured an 831B forum as part of everything else that we were doing. And when it came time at the end of the year to have their tax return filed, their CPA wouldn't file it. Because? They just didn't understand any of it. And they didn't understand how you could pay this premium over to this company and take that deduction. Right, they, weren't even, we, they weren't even being asked to file the insurance company's tax return. We do that. Oh, Wow. But because he didn't even because understand. Because there was a, a deduction on this other company's books for an insurance payment to their 831B, I sent them a 24-page legal brief that broke down every single aspect of what we did with all the appropriate case law and all the appropriate code out of, the, uh, out of Title 26. I don't even think they read it. They just said, that this is too much. Yep. And they fired the client. Wow. And I told the client, I told you when I met you, this would happen. It's not exactly how I prefer to get clients on the tax side, but you want me just to go ahead and file your tax This is what's going client. on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Never been audited. I mean, it's insane. Okay. Do you have any other like juicy, like uh, little tax loopholes that people do or that people should do or people should be aware of? Like I've heard like the G-Wagon one. Like, oh, yeah. Like, well, yeah, is, yeah, that, yeah. is that a real thing? Uh, I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be a G wagon. I, I actually have a G wagon four squared. It was just sick. It's awesome. It is awesome. Um, can, and yeah, and that's a total write off. Can Can you explain how that works? Yeah. So so I mean, for some reason, the government has determined that vehicles six thousand pounds and heavier qualify as like a commercial. I don't want to say commercial, but kind of like a commercial vehicle. So you can buy any kind of vehicle you'd like that's six thousand pounds or more. And take it as a write-off. So this was a provision probably made for like 
like farm equipment yeah, yeah. or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, to be honest with you, I always, I make fun of it, okay? Um, because when people are at the end of the year and they go to their CPA, remember we were kind of shit on CPAs, when they go to their CPA as to how to lower their taxes, what's the same, every single time, the only thing the CPA's got for me, oh, go buy another piece of equipment. Yeah. Oh, go buy another vehicle. Well, what if I don't want another fucking vehicle? Yeah. Right? I'm trying to save money and have cash. Yeah, I need cash on hand. I don't need to tie my money up in some dumb shit. Yeah. Right? So that's where... Uh, things like even in 831B, yeah, it ties it up for 12 months. But then the but then you have the, then you have it liquid to be able to deploy back to your business should you need to, right? Um, so the, the G-Wagon thing, just a button that is if you buy a G-Wagon, it's basically a write-off yeah, because yeah, it's you, over 6,000 Yeah, you make it your company vehicle, and now it's a write-off. Wow. Right? Which goes back to if I'm a W-2 employee, start a freaking company on the side. Right, because then you can buy your G-Wagon yeah. and then put make it to the company expense. vehicle and then write it off. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, are there any other things like that? Any other pieces of, like, free game that would be, um, that would be there, helpful? There, yeah, way? there's something called the Augusta Rule, okay? okay? Um, and the Augusta Rule is basically just um, you're able to um, call around in your town, find three different venues, uh, get average costs of what they would charge you in order to hold an event at those venues. It's usually going to be thousands of dollars a time, mm-hmm. right? Um, then you just book out your own home. For, I can't, I can't remember, seven, eight, nine functions throughout the course of the year. So just throw parties with all your friends. Mm-hmm. And you get to assign that cost as if you had gone to a hotel and rented out a ballroom. And then you get to take that as a deduction. <laughs> Does it have to technically be a business party? Yeah, technically. Okay. But, what well, I mean— yeah, of course. What, okay, so what you, differentiates a business party from a not a business party? And how many parties do you have to have in order? No, to you have don't it? have you as many. I mean, you, you can have one, you can have three, you can. I, there's some limit to them. Okay. Um, so let's say you're doing like a birthday party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just invite some, uh, you know, invite some uh, clients over, and uh, charge yourself uh, the amount that the average of three different facilities in your local area would have charged you. And this could be at a random nightclub. This could be at a strip club. This could be wherever. Well, a strip club might be hard to pull off, but I don't know why not. Okay. But usually you're going to call up like Marriott, and you're going to see what their conference room would cost, and then you're going to call up the Hilton and see what their conference and room would Sheridan, cost. And Sheridan, they say yeah, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're just going to take an average of that, and now you're going to charge yourself that. Wow. Uh, Oh, that's that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay, called the Augusta okay. Rule. Okay, what else? Well, um, I, I love these little, like, Okay, little so rules. so let's go charitable deductions. Okay. You can donate stuff. Mm-hmm. The problem is that you have to have held it for 12 months in a day. Right? Well, I can buy shares in a company. And that company could have held those items for over 12 months. <laughs> And that company will then donate stuff on my behalf, and it counts as me having held it for 12 months in a day, and I get the deduction. So when you say hold it for 12 months in a day, you mean like the the cash that you have? Not cash. Um, Let's say um, I, for some reason, collected stamps. Okay. I know it's kind of like an old-timey thing. Yeah, but let's say you're a virgin. Let's yeah. just say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have no intention of ever associating with the opposite sex. Yes, okay. So you decide to become a stamp collector. Yes. All right. Well, the boys' club is the, has the largest stamp collection in the world. Okay. Well, where do you think they get it from? Why would they have it? What's the point of it? Mm-hmm. Well, 
I can go have my stamp collection valued, right? And most likely it's going to be valued significantly higher than what I paid for it. So I had a client, the book value of his stamp collection was a million dollars. Okay. Now we're going to donate that stamp collection and he now has a million dollar deduction. All right. Now, the problem was he built that stamp collection over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So there's companies out there that they harvest uh, documents out of bars, literally bar tabs, Mm -hmm. but like from the 1800s. Now, they will bundle these into boxes with a, and they're ready because they do this. They know that when you donate this box to a university's library, they're going to receive back a receipt from the university for a value of, say, $200,000 for these rare documents. Mm-hmm. Now, how the hell do you know they're worth two hundred grand? You know, I mean, who knows? It's arbitrary. It's nonsense. <laughs> okay. okay. So this company will charge you $50,000. So you'll pay them fifty grand. they are going to take a box and donate it to a university, and you're going to get a $200,000 deduction. <laughs> for a box of old shit. For a box of old shit. Now, uh, it gets crazier. We do this with magnesium. You buy 50000 of magnesium, you donate it to a st- stroke research center, and they use the magnesium for research to help prevent strokes. Wow. You buy $50,000 worth of volcanic ash, and you donate it to farmers in Haiti, and you get a $200,000 deduction for your volcanic ash. And this... Sort of circumvents the 12 months in a day rule because the company that you're buying it from has had these they documents. Have. They have the ash. ash. They, they have, have the, the magnesium. magnesium. Wow. So what you have right now, you don't have to buy magnesium and sit on it for no. a year. No. You go to this company, say, hey, here you go. The company takes a fee, I'm assuming? Oh, absolutely. Well, wow. they get the fee because you don't think they spent 50 grand on the volcanic ash. They didn't spend 50 grand on the rare docks. Right, right, right. right? So there's their money. Um, and then they make the donation, you get the receipt, and now you get your $200,000 deduction. Now, the problem with that one is that you're limited to like 30% of your AGI. AGI is your adjusted gross income. But, you know, it, it's, it's so look, there's two, there's two. Uh, <laughs> this is, that's so great. That's such a, that's awesome. <laughs> there, there's two groups of tax strategies, right? Um, there's where you come to me at the end of the year. And you want me to get you out of the taxes you incurred leading up to that point. Mm-hmm. That is the least effective, most expensive shit I can do. Mm-hmm. There's you come to me and we put a plan together to prevent your taxes from occurring in the future. Right. Yeah. That's the most effective. Doing it proactively is going to save always, you way more money. Always, always, always. It's way easier. It's way cheaper. It's way more effective. There's another problem with CPAs, I'm assuming. Is that you right, go so to your CPA at the end of the year and go, hey, here's what I did. Oh, there's so many problems. One, you're coming to them at the end of the year. Who else is coming to them at the end of the year? Everyone. Mm-hmm. How much time do they got for you? None. But if you sit down with someone proactively, you say, hey, I'm going to be doing this. I'm going to be investing in this. What yeah. can we do? How can we do it? Blah, blah, blah. And you go through the code. You say, hey, we're going to do this, this, and this. Yeah, map out, map out a, an actual plan, right? You wow. fail a plan, you plan to fail. Wow. Okay. Right. Do you have any other loopholes? If if you, well, I mean, if you no, don't, no. I mean, I mean, we. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, we can. Uh, these go. are just so fun. Yeah. No, the university are. thing seems like such a funny little hustle. Like if you donate money to a university, yeah, absolutely. And then these universities just become giant hedge funds. Oh, that's all they are. It's insane. That's all they are. Like I, what is like Harvard's endowment? Oh, is, Harvard. You know, um, Har- Harvard is one. Uh, Texas A and M is like the largest buyer of gold. 
literally like gold bars. Gold. Like gold. Bullion or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. One year they bought some crazy amount of it. It was just like, what in the world? Right? Um, No, yeah. And I hate the whole... um, So I went to a community college for four days and dropped out. Hell yeah. And and it's funny. uh, We're always hiring. And somebody on one of our hiring posts is like, well, this doesn't say what degrees are required. I'm like, yeah, because there aren't any. Yeah. Like, what do you mean there aren't any? I'm like, I don't have one. Yeah. Why would I require <laughs> anyone that works for me to have one? Right yeah. now, there's certain professions you have to have one. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think you can be a CPA without one. Um, there's uh, there's four states in which you can sit for the bar without having gone to law school. Oh yeah, I knew a guy that did this. Oh okay. Yeah, but yeah. you have to have been mentored by an attorney for four years. I think. Yeah, yeah. He was a paralegal, and okay. he was like, "Yeah, I'll just try it. We'll yeah. see what happens." And he passed. Yeah. Yeah. And you became yeah. an attorney without ever going to law school. Yeah, yeah. But there's only four states you can do that in. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, certain jobs within our industry, yeah, you got to have a college degree, um, which is funny because, like I said, I don't. Mm-hmm. They're all allowed to work for me. <laughs> right. I mean, isn't that comical? Right? Yeah. You've got to have it to do your profession, but you don't have to have it to work for the guy that employs you to do your profession. <laughs> yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Okay, um, can you talk to me a little bit about old old wealth? Like yeah, old yeah, money? yeah. So that's what we were, that's what we started off this conversation on. We went way off, yeah, off yeah, topic, yeah. right? Now we're back. So, All right. you know, we hear these famous names, Rothschilds, yes. like even more recently, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Vanderbilts. Yes. These are old industry tycoons in America that made so why are, of dollars. So why are they not listed on Forbes' list of billionaires? That's a great question. Because they don't actually own anything. Okay, this is back to that royal family conversation. Exactly. None of those people actually own anything. If I don't own it, you can't put me down on a list. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be on a list. Yeah, of Why do I not want to be on a list? I just, I, low profile. The, yeah, exactly. I don't need that attention. Who cares? My family, I've been, I've been, we've been running shit for, you. here's one for you. Uh, Alexander Dumas. He wrote The Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. In the Count of Monte Cristo, when the main character uh, goes to the island to get the treasure that the Frenchman had told him about while they were in prison, he then has to take this treasure and go convert it to cash. And where does he go? He goes to a bank owned by the Rothschilds. Oh, in the book. In the book, the Count of Monte Cristo, <laughs> written in 1846 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe 1860, I can't remember. Yeah. If they were controlling the banking industry in Europe in the 1800s, yeah. you think they've lost power and money or gained it since then? Probably gained it. I, I mean, guarantee they, they built gained the system. it. Yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, their whole thing was genius. I mean, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but basically like Moses Rothschild that like, gets his five sons yes. and sends them all over Europe correct. to set up banks. Correct. And Absolutely then... correct. They control everything. Wow. Okay. And yet, I don't see them in the top three, five wealthiest people, yeah. right? So, um, same thing with the British royal family. So all of their assets are held in trust, okay? And these trusts have their own EIN. EIN is? Uh, uh, employment identification number, mm-hmm. okay? Or TIN, a tax identification number. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 you have one. It's mm-hmm. called your social security number. Mm-hmm. When you create an LLC or S-corp or anything, it has one, right? But, but there's some very unique things about trusts that are different than corporate structures. Trust law is all created at a state level, or to be more accurate, at a domicile level. A state is a domicile. 
Mm. All your all your Indian nations, your native nations, are domiciles. Mm. Uh, a country is also a domicile. Okay, so trust law is all governed at the domicile level. So these these ultra wealthy families and where you want to get to, everyone wants to get to, is to where you owe nothing. Right? <laughs> Wasn't that uh, Rockefeller? Own nothing, control everything. Okay, so your trust owns it. You are just a beneficiary of it, mm-hmm. okay? So you have access to the resources held in trust, but they're not yours. Now, because they're not mine, what does that mean? That means that when I'm drunk and I hit somebody- you can't come after me. You can't come after any of my assets. I'm poor. I have nothing. Mm-hmm. I, the car I'm driving wasn't even mine. <laughs> okay? So, yeah. Yeah. This yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And then the way you set up the trust is how people can access it, et cetera. Uh, Absolutely. Is this how, would you say, like oil families in Saudi Arabia? Everybody. Putin, I've heard, is one of the wealthiest people because there's like control over the oligopolies in Russia. Yeah. Well, and so, I mean, some of those, when you get into things like, when you get into places like Russia and Saudi, um, they have other means of like, Putin doesn't have to own, like that's more mob. Mm. mentality, right? Where I show up and threaten to break your legs and you give me a cut, mm. right? So he gets like kickbacks from all these people that are doing, that are, that are operating inside his kingdom mm-hmm. basically, right? Um, so I don't, I don't, I can't speak uh, to how that is actually handled. Yeah. Um, I would imagine it's not through legal mechanisms. That makes sense. That okay. makes sense. And your background in all of this is so interesting too, because like you said, you didn't go to, you know, some Harvard MBA program. No. Dropped out of community college. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like kind of like you had a kid, you were 30 years old oh, oh, and like yeah, virtually yeah. Uh, yeah, homeless. Yeah, no, I love Yeah, I love telling people this story because people look at you once you become successful and they, they for some reason just think you must have always been that way. Right. right. Yeah, it's easy for you to say this because you're obviously born with a trust fund and yeah, you're yeah, a rich yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah, in fact, in fact, I was at a dinner last night where you're not allowed to use your last name or tell anybody what you do. And then afterwards they go around the room and they guess what you are and trust fund kid was one of the things somebody guessed about me. Hilarious. Okay. Which is funny because I am to my own trust fund. <laughs> okay. You're a trust I fund cre- adult. I'm a, I'm a trust fund adult. <laughs> yeah. I created, I didn't, it didn't come from my parents. Mm-hmm. I created my own, I made myself a trust fund baby. Can, can you share what your parents did? What, like, what uh, my dad is what I kind of referred to as a serial failed entrepreneur. Mm. All right. Was all, all sorts of crazy things. He, he went to Hong Kong uh, to start a manufacturing company and came home with a Chinese family that lived with us for eight months. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for real. Uh, at one point, he was uh, freezing um, NHRA drag race motors uh, with cryogenics, like uh, uh, liquid oxygen or liquid nitrogen or some shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just random crazy stuff. And never, just never found his place in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom um, is basically a linguist, Speaks like all these different languages, uh, very cultured, loves the arts, foreign countries, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but she's the one that like really taught us like, you know, started babysitting other people's kids at the age of 10. Would come home and uh, we had a three by five spiral bound note card book. I'd have to write down the date, who hired me, how much they paid me. Uh, 10% went to tithing to our church. Uh, 50% went to my bank account for in the savings. 40% went to spending. Uh, by the time I was like 15 years old, I think I had about 5000 saved up. They brought the family investment advisor over. I sat down at the kitchen table. I made my first investments in the stock market. Uh, my sister was 18 months older than me. She's, she's doing all the same things. 
I have two younger brothers. All three of us are licensed financial advisors. Oh, that's awesome. Go, go figure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is what you're doing at yeah, 10 exactly. and 15. You're all kind of set on a path, right? So you, maybe you didn't have a ton of like cash flow as a young age. No, but I had knowledge. Fund, I had teaching. Which is arguably more important. Way more important because mm-hmm. it literally made three of us capable of going out and doing this, mm-hmm. right? So, um, but... I was still missing something. I was a problem kid. I was arrested, thrown out of high school. What'd you get arrested for? Uh, <laughs> I don't know that we want to get into that here. Fair. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, really for being entrepreneurially minded. Got it. Okay. Hell yeah. Um, I love making a buck. Yeah. Uh, because so in sixth, so fifth grade, in fifth grade, I had a teacher walking by me. She saw my lunch, was so offended by it. She picked it up, threw it away, took me over. Uh, got me a free school lunch because my dad, everything was up and down, right? We, we'd go to Europe one summer and and us kids would be helping pay the bills the next. Wow. Oh, yeah. Right? So so I started cleaning the cafeterias in fifth grade. I had to clean the cafeteria fifth grade and sixth grade instead of going out to recess uh, in order to get my school lunch. Wow. Okay. That was a very uh, defining experience for me, um, like not being part of my peers not going out to have fun and do what they're doing, Hustle. And working, yeah. hustling to eat, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so, so I graduate high school, um, raised Mormon, still still go to church and everything, um, but so I went and did this two year mission for my church in Southern California. Um, and for anyone that doesn't know Mormons, a mission is basically yeah, uh, yeah. You don't work, you don't go to school. Um, you, you go somewhere, uh, most people think it's to a foreign country and yeah, it's, there's a couple hundred countries that you could go to. I had a friend of mine go Vietnamese speak in Australia. Another friend of mine went to, uh, the slums of Rio. Another friend of mine went with the, to the Ketchi Indian tribes in the jungles of Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I get Southern California. Hell it was yeah. a total letdown. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was bummed. But it's kind of sick though. No, it, it, turned, no it turned out to be amazing. And I'm so glad, uh, mostly because, uh, my mission president, the guy that, um, does, you know, he gets, he's a member who comes out to run it. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was Marsden Blanche, and he had started a company called Megadyne, um, which I think became one of the largest medical manufacturing companies in the world. It's now owned by Ethicon, which is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. Wow. But so at, at 19 years old, I got this guy mentoring me and teaching me, mm-hmm. right? Even with all these advantages, I get home from my mission, and for the next nine years, I, would, I was just like my dad. I would have these momentary blips of success followed by Boom. absolute poverty. I was lazy. I was undisciplined. I took things for granted. Um, so get married at 25, um, have a kid. I have a second one on the way. I'm living back out in California. I'm 30 years old. I'm being evicted for the third time. Uh, we're living in an apartment complex. I have no electricity. Um, I got this kid, uh, my second kid on the way. Um, and I, oh, my car was repoed, so I'm driving a rental. <laughs> okay. Damn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was rough. It was not, not a good situation. Yeah. 30 years old, like. Kids, family. Yeah. 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 Disaster. Kind of taking some L's. Oh, like one after the other. All right. Um, and there was this guy in the apartment complex we were friends with, and he went into the Border Patrol. And, it, and it, when he did, it just brought me back to these memories where, as a kid, I'd always wanted to be in the military. Um, I had even tried to join the military when I was 25 with a special program that didn't even exist by the time I was 30. And I'm just, and, but, but I had met 
my wife at the time, and she didn't want to be married to a guy in the military, so I stopped pursuing that mm-hmm. avenue. And so, um, but by the time I'm 30, I've been married for five years, it was a total shit show. And so I'm driving down the road in my rental, I look over, I see this army recruitment office, I just pull it in and enlist. Wow. Don't even tell her. Wow. She was pissed. <laughs> and I'm like confused. How can you be mad? Like you're about to get a paycheck every two weeks. That's a good point. You're about to live somewhere with electricity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to Afghanistan and have electricity, yeah. and your shitbag husband can't provide it to you. Like, yeah. like to me, it was just about what do I got to do? And, and I always felt that like, and I read a lot as a kid, um, and I always, and I read a lot of books like Platoon Leader and things like that. And I always felt like, you know, combat and war was a place to go to kind of become a man. Mm. And I know that's naive and romantic and probably not true, but I know that, and I never felt like I was missing a lot. I just felt like I was missing a key thing mm-hmm. and I could never just put, I could never identify it and I could never figure it out. So I joined the Army, age of 30. It's 2006. It's the height of U.S. combat casualties in Baghdad. And I go from basic to advanced individual training um, to deployed within a month, wow. I think, um, to Baghdad. Wow. Um, I spent three years. Uh, I have three years of combat time during my six-year uh, stint in the, in the military. And I can, it was incredible. Every boyhood dream or fantasy I'd ever had about being a soldier, I got fulfilled. Jumping out of helicopters, fucking doing crazy shit. Uh, the craziest shit. Yeah. Okay. It was incredible. And All right. You feel like it gave you what you were searching for. It Well, it taught me how to stand up for my own ideas and values, how to hold my ground, how to create a space that was mine, right? Where, like, hey, my ideas are valid. Um, I can hold this ground, right? And I can exert my will on the universe around me. And mm. up until that point, I just kind of felt like I like would like let other people kind of push me around. You were on the ride. Yeah. And the and life was dictating what was going to happen. Yeah. 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 And and not anymore. Now it's my terms. Mm. Right? Because once you go to combat, it changes you. And you are um like it just the first time that uh people die instead of you right? It just changes your whole perspective of the universe. And, uh, um, and, and so you just come out of there as a very different person. Um, and, uh, and I, and, and so, I mean, I don't know, I think the proof's in the pudding. You look at what's, um, occurred in my life since then. And it's like, yeah, no, like, yeah, it's not all positive. What that, what, what occurred over there. Right. But, I'm absolutely able of doing things that like I never was able to do before. Yeah. And it's awesome. Do you feel like you have an obligation to go out and and get after it? No, no, I'm no, I'm not one of those people. I don't think, um, so I refuse to believe that, um, that like I'm special in any way that I lived for any kind of particular reason. Uh, I think it's pure fucked up chaos and randomness. Uh, I don't think that uh, I don't think that when one person dies and somebody else lives, that person that lived is special for some reason. You right. can't tell me that your life is more important than someone else's, right? Because that means the person that died deserved it. It's like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, or what? They weren't as special as you. Yeah, like what makes you think you're special? Yeah, like there's eight billion of us. 
Yeah. I assure you, you're not special. Yeah, you got lucky that you weren't on the other side. That's of it. all it is, is it's just sheer random ass luck. And you're alive one second and you're toast the next. And there's not a damn fucking thing you can do about it. Um, you know, which is funny because like when I read Platoon Leader, it talked all about people that didn't pay attention to, um, or maybe it was another book, but they were talking about uh, in class learning to look for things like punji sticks where the enemy would dig holes and sharpen wooden sticks and defecate on them so you'd fall Vietnam and you'd get shit. hurt. Yeah, and yeah. then you'd get infected. And and, uh, and this, this story I read was this guy's talking about how these people weren't paying attention in that class and then they were more likely to get hurt. Well, my experience was it didn't matter how att- much attention you paid. It didn't matter how much you studied. There was no stopping it. When you were dead, you were dead. Good fucking luck. There's nothing you could do about it. So I actually spent three years in combat literally not giving a shit. Uh, I'd, if there was a, if we pulled up and there was an IED, eh, fuck it, roll over it. Who cares? If it blows up and kills us, we're dead. Wow. Whatever. Just, you just, you just got it. it was, I know it's a real, it's like. It's an insane way to live. Well, that's how screwed up. Oh, yeah. No, I, I jokingly tell people, imagine you're insane and you're stuck in an insane asylum, right? Are you insane? No. You're, you're normal because everyone's fucking nuts. Yeah, it's relative to your environment. Right? But then you get out of that insane asylum and you go out into the normal world and that's when you realize, oh, I'm fucking nuts. Right? That's being in the army. When you're in the army, you're one insane fucker and surrounded by a bunch of other insane fuckers. And it's not until you get out of there, you're like, holy shit, we're screwed up. Yeah. And there's comfort in that. Yeah, keep, keep me in the insanity. Uh, well, yeah, you get you get institutionalized. Yeah, right. And it, and so that's that's one of the challenges with soldiers getting out. Is you have this. So I tell all the soldiers that I ever meet, take your experience, be proud of it, but box that shit up and put it behind you. Like take the value from it. Be proud of what you did. Uh, be grateful for lessons learned. Now box that shit up, set it behind you and reinvent yourself. Because if you hold on to that identity, you're never going to be able to move on. Are you familiar with Sebastian Younger's work? Uh, no. He's an awesome author. He wrote this book called Tribe that okay. talks about this exact thing. He's a war journalist. In okay. short, he basically says coming home from war is so difficult for soldiers because it is simultaneously the hardest time of their life interwoven with the greatest time of their life. Yes. There's yes. no there's no time in your life where you feel more purpose, yes. where you feel more camaraderie, yes. Yes. where you where you feel more competent in yes. your job. And it's confusing as all hell. And simultaneously you're seeing your closest people you yes. ever met pass away yes. randomly for no reason. Yes. Platoon leaders getting shot when oh, they yeah. weren't the ones supposed to take the bullet. And then you get back into society and you, society's lacking all those things. There's no community. No. You come home, you have a job you don't give a fuck about. You're not no. you don't have a purpose. You don't have camaraderie with those people like you did. With the Joes that you were to play with. Exactly. So he says like PTSD rates, even of people that experience really, really severe trauma, they recover quicker than people that were in the military that saw worse things because the people that that saw less worse things in the military because the people that have severe trauma, like in a sexual assault or something terrible, the whole experience is bad. But guys that come out of the military, they go, 
It was so, kind of bad, but yeah. it was kind of the greatest thing ever. And I never felt more alive in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Just last night, somebody says something. They're like, thank you for sure. I'm like, uh, no, it's my pleasure. It's it's uh, jokingly the most fun you can have with your clothes on. Yeah. And uh, they all look at me like I'm nuts. But uh, yeah. yeah, and yet at the same time, it's like the most horrendous thing you've ever been through. Exactly. And so the PTSD can yeah. be severe even for people that don't even see, you know, high-grade combat like that. Yeah. It's it's a bizarre yeah. experience that no. I don't think people that are civilians really understand. No, no well, no, and and the problem is you spend so much time over there, you you no longer are able to understand civilians. Yeah, I'd come. I remember when I first came home, I was sitting in an adult Sunday school class at church, and this lady um, who I really really like, so I'm not criticizing her. She uh, asked this question, like if if people thought there was somewhere in the on Earth where the light of Christ didn't exist, and in my head I'm like, are you fucking nuts? How about count where it does? Like you're white, your husband makes 300,000 a year, you live in a suburb of Kansas City in Kansas. Like what you think the light of Christ is, that's where it exists. Yeah. The whole, all the continent of India, the whole continent of Africa, all of Central and South America, all of Indo Asia. Like I got news for you. You would never want to be a woman in any of those places. Yeah. Like it is horrific. It is so bad. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so when you hear somebody, when, and you, so you come from having lived in those places and having fought the wars over there, and then you hear these people make those kinds of questions, and you're just like, are you stupid? Like, what is wrong with you? And you're angry. You're like yeah. angry. They're so naive and so dumb. And, and then you get a couple years away from it, and you're like, you calm down, and you're like, yeah, it's not their, like, you don't yeah. want them to be familiar with how bad it is. Yeah. Because you were naive like that once before well, also. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But you forget. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's, uh, and especially when it gives you what you're searching for, you go into the military as a boy and you come out a man, you got to be grateful for the experience. Yeah. Even if you're a 30 year old boy. Yeah, exactly. You know? And, and I feel like for you, again, I don't want to speak for your emotions, but I can imagine it's pretty challenging. Like you have babies at home, you have a wife that's depending on you and you're like, yo, I'm going out here and I'm going to go try to find something. Well, and here's how screwed up I was, right? It was like, even if I had to go die and she got to collect my life insurance benefit, at least I would be doing my job, which I wasn't doing before I went in. Yeah. Like that was the mentality that I went in with. Yeah, that's tough to deal with as a dude. Yeah. Like at least if I'm if I'm dead and she's got some cash, it's yeah. better than me being alive it's, being a deadbeat. Yeah, 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 yeah. <sighs> that's heavy. Yeah. But yeah. you you made it out. Oh, I, luckily. Yeah, made it out. All my limbs, right? Uh, not being disfigured too badly, right? I mean, I was already ugly, so I didn't have to worry about that. But, uh, um, yeah, and then I really feel like it gave me whatever I needed change in personality um, to be able to now, you know, run a multimillion-dollar company and um, and accomplish the things that I want in life. And an appreciation for life in maybe a different oh, way. big time, big time. Yeah. When you see it get taken away for no reason, all of a sudden you go, yeah, there's – there's something to be grateful for for just waking up. Oh, oh, absolutely. Before before I deployed, I hated Christmas. Halloween was my favorite holiday. Still one of my favorite holidays, but I hated Christmas. And then I spent my first Christmas deployed overseas. And I'll never I'll never take Christmas for granted ever again. You, mm-hmm. you just it just really changes your perspective. Why is that? Um, like you just realize how important a holiday that is like steeped in culture and tradition and family uh, is. Right. Uh, before that, it, I just saw all the, you know, the hassle of buying presents and the expense. Yeah, it's work. And the str- it was work. Right. 
And now it's like you you spend you spend time over in the Middle East during Christmas, and it's like now you now you it's like no, it completely just reverses that, and uh, and it's like no, this this is this is what life's about right here. Like, yeah. Like the family coming together, coming in from other places around town, that the stupid fights that occur, everybody being packed into a small space, uh, that proximity to each other, catching up on whatever life has occurred over the last year. Um, I don't, you know, being able to do it every year to where you see people changing and growing, right? Um, yeah. And how how much do those things cost? Right, nothing. Yeah, it's priceless. Yeah. Does it cost anything to do it? I mean, it might cost you a little bit to, to get together, but yeah, there's, that's that's one of the the bizarre things I think of achieving extreme success and wealth is that by the time you get it, you realize that wasn't what you were searching for the whole time. Okay, yeah. So last night I made a comment. Um, I was actually hanging out with the senior speechwriter to Joe Biden, mm-hmm. and which I is made, a hilarious job, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> there's so <laughs> many jokes uh, I wanted millions, to make. Millions, billions, <laughs> and a hundred. Like, wait a minute. You, how do you write that? <laughs> or, or is what you're writing not being said? Yeah, I just think you write wingdings. Yeah. I think that's the font you use. <laughs> is that the font? Yeah, wingdings? Little, yeah, it's a little, yeah, little yeah. riff. No, no, no. And she's, she's amazing. She's really cool. Um, but uh, I told her, you know, what's funny is you, you get to the point where it's like you have, you know, the cool house. I mean, I have my own shooting range, three acres of motocross. Um, I got this room. It's badass. It's all glass and it's my gun room. Um, and, uh, I always joke, I want to put a sign above it that says in case of Democrats break glass, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, and, and you got the cars, you know, the G wagon, I, my daily driver's like a Tesla S plaid. Yeah. You and, did it. You did right? it. You got out of the mud. Yeah. You did it. Yeah. And you realize that shit's fun. But that's all it is. And you can have it one day and it can be gone the next and now it doesn't matter to you anymore. And so she goes, so what does matter? And I was like, you know, I had a, um, watching people get to come into your world, getting to bring people in to your proximity and getting to help them fulfill their potential and achieve things that they never thought were possible and watching them get to buy their dream car. Like that is way more enjoyable than buying that shit yourself. Yeah. So, you know. I just, you know, you feel blessed. Yeah. You know, so. Helping the, the, the younger Elliots. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and sometimes like the first person that was actually significantly older than me, um, the guy hugged me on a, it was a December. He hugged me and I cried and thanked me. Um, and he had, and he had, and I don't want to give too many specifics, but his business, but where he was three years earlier and where he was that day was just incredible. And, and he, and he, and he attributed it to me having brought, I mean, I, I, it took me two years to get him to come join me. Mm. And, uh, and then the next three years, it was like a life changing amount of money. Yeah. And like I said, it's not the cars, it's not that, it's not the money per se, but money definitely, like I've lived, I've lived life poor. Mm-hmm. It ain't fun. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's not the things, it's the freedom that the, yeah. that the cash can afford you and the lack of stress and anxiety of thinking that you're going to get homeless any week. Yeah. But I think there's a diminishing return, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the difference between making, you know, a million a year and 10 million a year, I think you probably feel a similar level of happiness. 
you need a threshold. You, you need to be able to make enough to live. But yeah, in in college, they went over some with well, my daughter when she was in college. They went over some article. She called me up and like, yeah, there's some study that says that uh, it's seventy thousand dollars a year. I'm like, do they mean seventy thousand a month? I like, I can't imagine the threshold 70 grand a year, but they legitimately claim. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, that once you hit 70,000 a year, it's there's it's the, the diminishing return thing. It's like you're not getting any more satisfaction. I'm like, mm, I don't know if that's, I think that number is a little low, but I do agree with the concept. <laughs> yeah, there is a number. There is. Yeah. There is. Um, and, and, and I will tell you that you have all the same problems. Yeah. Um, I have all. It's just funny to me. Like, I always joke, I'm not rich. I'm financially irresponsible, <laughs> right? And and because I'm financially irresponsible, I'll have the same issues today that I had a year ago. It's just with bigger numbers, yeah. you know? But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's fun. Life's fun. This is awesome. Unfortunately, I yeah, could talk time, to you right? all day. Yeah, I no, genuinely I think could we talk could, to you all no, day. I, I, yeah. Unfortunately, I got to run to D.C. Yeah. We got some shows. Yeah. Are you going to talk about that on this podcast, what show you're doing? I think yeah, this is the yeah, coolest yeah, thing yeah. ever. So I opened for this guy, Andrew Schultz. I, I, yeah, I this thought you guy, knew that. Yeah. This, no, I do know that. <laughs> I, want, I just want to make sure that when people hear me talking to you, I get the uh, benefit of them knowing exactly. that you know yes. Andrew Schultz, and exactly. I now get to talk to you. Exactly. So yeah, Andrew's, uh, Andrew's a buddy and a mentor of mine that has helped Dude, me out uh, to a degree that I couldn't even put into words. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, I'm going to do some shows with them in DC. and That is awesome. I've be, been watching that guy's videos on the internet for I don't know how long. It feels like for years. But. He's the greatest. He's a he's yeah. a he's a excellent comedian and an yes. even better dude. Yeah. So yes. yeah, yeah. I I I really I'm, dig him. We, I got to set you up. We all yeah. got to get dinner. That'd be awesome. I'd yeah, love yeah. That. This would be fun. All right, Elliot. Thanks, I appreciate you, brother. Thanks Thank so much you. for spending the time with me. Of course, my pleasure. Let's do it again. All right.